there are certain uh, days and occasions in our lives when we want to have a high level of confidence. When you're sitting down for that important and consequential uh, exam, an SAT exam, an ordination uh, exam, confidence on the day of a job interview that you might have, confidence uh, when you sign on the dotted line for that down payment on a house, certainly confidence on the day of your wedding. But there's arguably no single day when you will want and need confidence more than on the day the Bible calls the day of judgment. The day of judgment. And in the book of 1 John, the Apostle John not only calls us to have confidence for this day, but he instructs us in where this confidence comes from. So we continue in 1 John chapter 4 as we give our attention to the Word of God. 1 John 4, beginning at verse 13. Confidence for the day of judgment. 1 John 4.13. John continues, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Throughout this letter, John has been addressing some very practical matters for our everyday living. In chapter 1, he spoke about walking in the light a metaphor we see throughout the Bible for the Christian faith and journey, walking in the light. In chapter 2, keeping the commandments of God. Chapter 2, verse 6, loving one another as Christ loved us. Chapter 4, discerning the spirits of truth from the spirits of error. Very practical and important matters. But here, John causes us to pause for a moment to lift up our eyes, to look down the corridors of time to see what is coming. To take our eyes off the present moment briefly to think about the future. Confidence for the day of judgment. It seems to me that for a number of years now it has been quite popular to give greatest attention on how to live in the present 
To be in the here and the now. Three more recent books proves the point. One called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. One of the most influential spiritualists living today. Another, Living in the Now by Gina Lake. Claiming, quote, to channel messages from Jesus, the Christ consciousness, she says, when we learn to be present in the moment, we discover that life provides us the wisdom, inspiration, motivation, love, and inner and outer resources we need to survive and be happy. A final book, How to Live in the Now by Ernest Svensson. These teachers are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their teaching is unbiblical. We would categorize them as false teachers. But we as Christians understand the value of living for today. The Scriptures teach us about the value of the present day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. The Apostle James warns about focusing too much on tomorrow, on the future. He says, come, you who say, tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, we'll spend a year there, we'll trade, we'll make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James is not suggesting that we are to be careless or unprepared about tomorrow or next week or what is coming next year, perhaps. The commitments we may have, the savings we may be putting aside to replace a vehicle, to prepare to have an education, the planning needed for the upcoming wedding. He's saying if you give too much attention on tomorrow or next year or retirement, you may end up becoming the Lord of your own life. And you will no longer be following the true Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. In an effort to secure your own future or master your own destiny, you're no longer yielding to the will of Jesus Christ, His Lordship, where there is true security and peace and joy. So yes, Focus on the day, on the present. But the Scriptures also call us to have an eye toward what is coming. I was thinking to myself, some of us can can do the cross-eyed thing, but not easy to have one eye toward what is ahead and one eye on the present. I I don't know if anybody can do that. But that's what the Scriptures call us to do to be focused on the here and now, and to be focused on what is coming. That's the biblical wisdom for us. Think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This day of the Lord that Paul's speaking about in Thessalonians is very much related to what John's referring to in the use of the day of judgment. Uh, The Old Testament prophets, Joel, Malachi, Amos, Obadiah, when they spoke of the day of the Lord in their preaching and in their writings, they're 
they're referring to times when God would intervene to bring judgment upon the disobedient and to intervene for the faithful. But the day of judgment that John speaks about, this is not any day of the Lord. It is that final day. It is the day or time that is fixed in the future. What thoughts come to your mind? What words come to your mind when you think about the notion, the concept of the day of judgment? The day of the Lord, the day of judgment in Scripture are often associated with darkness and gloom, dread. And for those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, so it is. As Amos the prophet said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness and not light. Gloom with no brightness in it. But is it all darkness? Is the day of judgment a day of darkness for those in Jesus Christ? I want us to see that John here not only mentions this day, But John tells us how we are to view this day, how we're to relate and think about this day, how how we are to prepare, even the attitude we are to have in thinking of this day. And that is to have confidence. To have confidence for that day. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. Forgiven in Christ, reconciled, justified. You go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Listen to what our catechism says about the day of judgment. Question 90 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks, what shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? At that day, the righteous shall be gathered to Christ, set on His right hand, openly acknowledged and acquitted, joining to judge the reprobate angels and men, be received into heaven, shall fully and forever be freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly happy and holy in body and soul in the company of innumerable saints and angels, especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit to all eternity." This the true members of the church shall enjoy with Christ at the resurrection and the day of judgment. Sounds good to me. The day of judgment is an awesome, imposing, arresting, and overwhelming day. And yet for those in Christ, it is a day of inconceivable joys. This past week, while Shelley and I were providing uh, premarital counseling for one couple over uh, Zoom because they're at a distance. Uh, we began talking about the wedding ceremony. We had met a few times over Zoom and we're getting closer to the wedding and need to 
to organize what the ceremony is going to look like. So we began running through that order. Uh, I mentioned that after a few scripture readings, there's going to be this point which we call the declaration of intent. This is a statement of your commitment, your intention to love and serve and honor this person. Then I said after that declaration of intent is going to be the exchange of rings and vows. And as soon as I said that, they both, sitting right next to each other, turned their faces toward each other, and they had a big smile. And I, I believe they were sort of transported, if you will. They were envisioning that day coming when they're going to stand face to face. They're going to take those vows, and they're going to enter into the marriage relationship. They, they were looking ahead at what that day is going to be. And it brought to them a smile. That's how it ought to be for us as we think about the coming of our Lord. Even the day of judgment for us in Christ. And when it comes to our Christian living and life, this is one of the reasons it is so crucial that we are pressing into the Word of God so that it's not today, or the circumstances of life, or the things of earth that are shaping our vision for living. It is His Word. It's His Word that calls us to be fixing ourselves on that day, and fixing our eyes on Christ, and the blessed hope of the resurrection. All that we have, indeed, even now, but that time when we will see Him face to face, our Savior, our precious Savior. John calls us here to have confidence for the day of judgment, The question is, how do I grow in confidence? Both for that day, the last day of this earthly life, and for today. Where does this confidence come from? Well, several times, John tells us where it comes from by using this word, abide. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him. Verse 15, whoever confesses Christ, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This language of abiding in God and God abiding in us and his people is arguably the central, the most common way that Scripture describes our relationship to the Lord. This is the way Paul throughout his epistles would speak about the relationship of, of the Lord to the, to the people of God by using that most repeated phrase, in Christ, in Christ, Christ in us, that union. And, and certainly they understood this from Jesus' own teaching there in John 15 when He gave that image of the vine and the branches. I am the true vine, you are the branches. Abide, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine, you cannot bear fruit apart from me. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. More often than justification or reconciliation or adoption, all precious realities for the Christian in all terms that describe our life in the Lord, it's this abiding or union with God and Christ that's perhaps most common. And that concept of that union or abiding is theologically rich, but it's so practical. This is what our Christian life is about. Communing with the Lord, hearing the Lord from His Word, resting upon Him, following Him, obeying Him, feeding 
upon Him. But this abiding is much more like an art form than a math equation. It's much more like sailing than it is driving a motorboat or floating down passively on a river. Because abiding in God has active components and passive components to it. John mentions it. Now, we may not know very much about sailing. I certainly don't. But one thing we all know is that wind is needed. You can have the finest sailboat. The the sails can be drawn. Without wind, you're going nowhere fast. This is one of the passive aspects of our abiding in God and He in us. You see it in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We are recipients of the Spirit of God. A person can be around the things of God, attending worship, hearing the Scriptures, meeting with other Christians. If the Spirit of God has not indwelt them, regenerated and given them new life in Christ, they are not united to God. They will not know His power, His conviction, His grace. Like sailing, we depend upon the work and the grace of God. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But the Christian has received the, the Spirit of God. Not only that, he has received something else that John mentions here, and that is the love of God. The love of God. Another passive aspect of abiding. We are containers, recipients of the love of God. He loves His people. Verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. In this abiding, we are on the one hand passive, We're dependent upon the Spirit, upon the love of God. But we're not only passive. We must be active to abide, to grow in confidence and assurance of our life in the Lord and for that final day. We must be active, which is why the metaphor, the picture of sailing, is instructive and helpful. Life with God is not driving a motorboat where we have Control of the power and the direction. That's not how life in the Lord works. Nor is it like rafting, in which we simply sit back and are carried along by the currents and the flow of the river. We cannot control the wind, but we must draw the sail to catch it. Which is why Paul says in Galatians, keep in step with the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Here John mentions our activity, our love for God, and our love for our brothers and sisters. Verse 20 and 21, anyone who says, I love God, and he says this commandment we have from God, whoever loves God must love his brother. We receive the Spirit. We receive the love of God, but we must draw the sail and trim the sail, laboring and working to love the Lord our God, to love one another. 
this is part of what reassures us that we are indeed in the Lord, that we are abiding. Now, how do we do this? How do we demonstrate and express love to God and to one another? Well, there's a question before that. It's the question before the question. Do we want to? Do we want to? That's a question that probably ought to come before us daily. Do we want to draw that sail? Do we want to run the race? Another metaphor that the Scripture gives to us. Or walk the journey. Another metaphor for the life of faith. Do we want to? That's the great end to which all of our obedience and prayer and devotion are but the means. Psalm 27, verse 8 captures this. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And if one desires to seek the face of God, to love Him, He has given us means to experience it. We call these the means of grace. Prayer and the Word and fellowship. Worship, the disciplines. That's the walk of faith daily. We might be thinking, is there some other way than walking? Walking gets tiresome. It can get tiresome. Is there a shortcut? Maybe we can just fly instead of walk. Well, there is a shortcut. But when we learn what those shortcuts are, namely suffering and humiliation, we would probably just prefer to walk. Listen to these words from Rankin Wilborn in his book, Union with Christ. He says, It is imperative to stress that these means of abiding are just that. They are means. If you don't see these means of abiding as ways of experiencing the freedom that is yours in Christ, but rather as encumbrances on your life, then they will be just that. Heavy yokes around your neck instead of ways to take on Christ's easy yoke. Abiding through the means God has given. Loving Him and one another is a daily calling. You think about that picture of sailing. What does it take for a boat to begin to drift? Nothing. If it's not anchored, if it's not tied down, it drifts. Hebrews 2 says, Thus we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And so we sing, O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. And then as we abide, and He abides in us, what happens? John says, His love is perfected in us. His love is matured in us as we abide. It grows and matures It leads to greater confidence and assurance of our life in the Lord. That love dispels fear. He says, perfect love casts out fear. We're called to fear God, but not to fear punishment 
or judgment, for we have been filled with His love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, how good You are to make known to us the way unto salvation, to know that the grand story of Your salvation and redemption, to know that we are moving toward an end, a day, the coming of Jesus Christ, the day of judgment, the day of resurrection, all moving toward these things. How we pray, Lord, that You would, by Your great love for us and Your Spirit at work within us, continue to grow us in assurance and confidence of who we are in Your beloved Son. All that we have now and all that awaits us. Lord, may we be an encouragement one to another as we walk together this journey of faith, resting upon Your great love in Christ. For this we pray in His name. Amen.